Well, thank you for that reading, uh, Liz. I do agree, it's a strange part of the Bible. Um, I'm going to cover the first four verses of the, that chapter and leave some of the more difficult stuff to Darcy next week. But um, In 2002, uh, there was an Israeli psychologist uh, named Daniel Kahneman who was given the Nobel Prize in economics for his work uh, in the psychology of judgment, decision-making, and in behavioral economics. And in 2011, he published a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And in it, he summarizes a lot of his research uh, that won him the Nobel Prize. And uh, I read it a few years ago. It's a bit of a thick read, um, but it's, I found it quite interesting. And at the beginning of the book, he describes a model that he uses for understanding how humans think. Um, it's kind of his way of framing, framing it all up. Um, he's, he uh, kind of describes our minds as having two systems, he calls them. System one is the fast system. It's impulsive quick thinking, instinctive. It's the one that helps us develop shortcuts in our thinking to make quick decisions um, and to make quick judgments and process the world that we see around us. It kind of happens without us really knowing what's going on. Uh, the second system is the slow system. It is more calculated. It is thought out. It is the kind of system that helps us with the more difficult problems in life, with um, detailed calculations, with detailed problem solving, the kind of thing that requires attention. It is a slow system. And today, as we pick up the story uh, in, in Jonah chapter 4, we're going to see two systems, but not two systems of thinking. We're going to see two systems of anger, which is why I've called the sermon Anger, Fast and Slow. We have Jonah's system of anger, which stands in pretty stark contrast to God's system of anger. And so again, this morning, we've arrived at this final chapter in Jonah, the one that if you're going to forget about a chapter in Jonah, it's probably this one. Um, we kind of know the rest of the story, but there is this kind of strange addition at the end. Um, it's, well, it's not really an addition. When you read the whole story in context, it's, it's really the climax of the story. Um, and we've been hanging around in this Old Testament book for seven weeks now, if you can believe it. It's taken seven weeks to cover about two pages in your Bible. Um, and Darcy's going to actually take a, an eighth week next week to wrap it all up. Um, but I don't know about you, I've been quite enjoying this little book that we've been going through. Um, its style and structure is a lot different than most Old Testament prophets that we read. It's kind of unique in, in the Old Testament. And I've been really encouraged actually about how much there is to learn in this Old Testament parable. And so again, we're picking up in chapter 4 and verse 1. And it's right after the end of chapter 3 where Harold left, left us off last week, right after God has relented of the judgment that he was promising on the Ninevites. He has shown mercy because they have listened to Jonah's message. Um, they have repented, and, and God then in turn relents of the disaster. And right after that, we see Jonah's reaction in chapter 4, verse 1, where it reads, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Now, some translators apply varying strength to that, that verse in, in how they describe Jonah's anger. Um, my version, the NASB, says this, it was, that it greatly displeased Jonah. Um, we read from the ESV earlier that said it displeased him exceedingly, or in the footnotes of your ESV Bible, it'll say that this was exceedingly evil to Jonah. Um, in the NIV, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. In the contemporary English version, Jonah was really upset. Um, my personal favorite is the Wycliffe Bible from uh, the 1300s, which says, and Jonah was tormented with great torment and was wroth. <laughs> you get the picture. Jonah was not too pleased about how God decided to handle this whole Nineveh situation. And he very quickly reacts with this anger. 
And I think if we're even kind of loosely familiar with the story of Jonah, we sometimes forget like just how crazy this reaction is. Like how much Jonah stands in contrast to the rest of the Old Testament prophets. Like how many Old Testament prophets would have been pumped if their audience received the message the way that Nineveh did. But Jonah is, as we've learned over the past number of weeks, an abnormal prophet on all accounts. Like if we think of Isaiah's commissioning in Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord is, is described there as saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? He's kind of looking around. And Isaiah's response is, here I am, send me. Like effectively, put me in, coach. And Jonah's response in chapter 1 to his call is, nope, I'm out of here. Like, he isn't even willing to ride the bench and watch the game. He just runs the opposite direction. And then we know the story. God gets a hold of him through some fairly dramatic means. And then he has, in chapter 2, this really contrite and self-reflective, grateful prayer to God from the stomach of the fish. And in Jonah chapter 2, if you flip back, we see in 2 verse 2 that um, he, he writes, or he says things like this, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. And then in verse 6, he says, I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever, but you have brought, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. And then in verse 9, he says, But I will sacrifice to you with, voice, with a voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And then we turn over to chapter 4, and we wonder, is it even the same person praying when he says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. In the span of about 10 or 15 verses, Jonah goes from, Thank you for saving my life, God, to kill me now. And when you first read this story, you might even wonder, like I said, it's, is it the same guy that he, that's praying these two, that these two things? Like, how quickly does he move from repentance to anger? all because of God's anger, you know? But that not that not, he's not mad that God has been angry, he's mad that God hasn't been angry, that he's been very slow to anger towards Nineveh. And over the last number of weeks, as we've gone through this book, knowing the end, you know, as Darcy and I uh, and Harold have preached messages, we've kind of alluded to this larger story arc, and we've always kind of known why Jonah is going to, like, reject God's call. He, we talk about this, this um, disdain he has for the Assyrians and for the Ninevites. But remember that for anyone reading this story for the first time, chapter 4 is the first time that we really understand like, why it is that he rejects the call in the first place, why it is that he didn't want to go to Nineveh. And he gives it away in verse 2 of chapter 4 when he says, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. He's effectively saying, like, I knew you were going to do this, God. I knew that you would relent. I knew that you would have mercy. I knew that you would be slow to anger. And it might be hard for us to understand. Like, we kind of understand wrestling with God. Like, we get that part, but we don't understand, like, well, why is this the sticking point, Jonah? Like, it feels kind of racist and nationalistic to us in some ways. Um, and in our current cultural moment, it's very easy to critique people like Jonah, to critique this kind of um, over-the-top patriotism. That comes pretty easily. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we should really condone Jonah's attitude in this chapter, but if we turn back to Exodus 34, and turn with, with me now to Exodus 34, 
we might be actually able to see a hint of what it is that Jonah is so upset about. In Exodus 34, we find where God is meeting Moses on Mount Sinai, and he's giving him the commandments on a pair of stone tablets. It's the covenant, covenantal law that he's giving to Israel. Um, and we read in verses 6 and 7, and we see where this phrase that Jonah kind of says, you know, God, you're slow to anger, you're compassionate, abounding in loving kindness. We see where this comes from. It's right at that moment when God is making this covenant to Israel. And in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, we read this. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren and on the third and fourth generations. So in this passage that Jonah is kind of alluding to, we actually see the juxtaposition of God's mercy and his justice. We see that, yes, he is slow to anger, abounding in faithfulness, but he also is not going to leave the guilty unpunished. These things are simultaneously true about God's character, but we know that sometimes they're hard to work out how they work in practice. And that's what Jonah is wrestling with. He knows that this God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who made this covenant with Israel to protect, guide, and keep her. They were his chosen people, it was the God who had spoke to him uh, in 2 Kings about the restoration of Israel's border. He had prophesied through Jonah about expanding Israel's kingdom. And yet God is showing mercy to the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian nation, who are sworn enemies of God's chosen people, who had carried Israel into exile, and who we know from history were famous for their atrocities. Even their art celebrated evil. Writes one author, Assyrian art relishes every detail of torture, massacre, battlefield executions, and human displacement that made Assyria the dominant power of the Middle East. It contains some of the most appalling images ever created. Like, these were not good people. It appears that they really did have judgment coming to them, and yet God showed mercy. And Jonah struggled with that. Like, how does a God who cares about that justice, how does a God who cares about justice let that happen? That's the question that Jonah's wrestling with. And this morning, I'm going to leave you on a little bit of a cliffhanger. I'm not going to really get into that. I'm not going to answer that question for Jonah or for us. You know, maybe Darcy will solve that conundrum for us next week. My point here is just this. Jonah has questions. He doesn't understand what God is up to. He's asking, what are you doing, God? How can this be? And I'm sure at various points in our lives, like, we can relate to that. It may be about this question of mercy and justice, or it may be another question. Maybe it's just a situation in our lives. We look at the data we have available to us, and we think, God, how are you good in this? How does this fit? And I think, like Liz alluded to, that wrestling about these things before God is fair. It's healthy, and it's advisable. But we see here in our passage that Jonah has betrayed that he's, he's lost perspective of who he's talking to. And we should be careful to avoid that error. We shouldn't be all that surprised that when we encounter a situation that we don't understand everything. And just because we can't see an explanation to something doesn't mean there isn't one. So there's an analogy that sometimes gets used in um, Christian apologetics. Um, and, I, and I'm going to apply it slightly differently here this morning, but I think it's helpful for our context. Um, so imagine that the floor in this room that we're, we're in here, it represents 
all the area represents all of the things that can be known in this world. Everything in science, philosophy, ethics, and theology. All of the things that if one were all-knowing, one would know. That's the whole floor in this room. Now, with that scale in mind, try to estimate for yourself the size of the area on the floor that would represent what you know about the world, about God and his ways. Most of us, if we're honest, are probably going to come up with an area that's quite small. Maybe you're looking down at your feet and you're thinking, okay, maybe it's a tile, or maybe it's half a tile, or maybe it's just a square inch on the floor, right? But the point is that what we know is small relative to all the things that could be known. Small relative to what an all-knowing being, God himself, would know. He covers the whole floor. He covers a lot more ground than we do in our understanding. So purely on an intellectual level, the gap between his understanding and ours is enormous. And if we encounter something that puzzles us about how he operates, I think we want to take that to him in all of the emotion, but we would do wi be wise to approach him with a little bit of humility, understanding that the explanation might lie outside of our tile. You see, purely from this like head perspective, intellectual perspective, Jonah had a ton of room to grow. He didn't fully understand the character of God and how he operates. None of us do. Jonah couldn't reconcile this concept of God's mercy and justice in his mind. The answer to that question wasn't on his tile. He had a lot more to learn. But he also has room to grow in his heart. I mean, really, look at the pride and resistance that he shows in his reaction, not to mention his hatred for the Ninevites. Like it was appalling, exceedingly evil, evil to him that God might show mercy to sinners, even though that's exactly what God had done for him a couple chapters earlier. Again, he's showing his lack of humility, failing to think that God might actually know better than him. He had determined based on what he saw that this was not right. He figured, I know better than God. And he wanted this whole thing with Nineveh, Nineveh to go a different direction. And when it does, doesn't, he kind of throws a little bit of a tantrum. Like his reaction is, take my life. And it might feel like that's a bit of a dramatic caricature of, of what goes on in this like single verse that we're looking at in, in you know, two and three. But if you follow through the rest of the chapter, you'll see it's not exactly an unfair caricature. His like reaction, although it's good that he's taking this anger to the Lord, is, is kind of out of step with, with the situation, the gravity of it. So since 2015, I've worn the proud, proud title of uncle to a few little, little people. And uh, in no way do I claim that that role has given me the kind of insight into the mind and behaviors of children that being a father would. So I always come up with these analogies about children with a little bit of trepidation um, as I speak to a group of many of you being parents. But I think, it's, I think it's fair to say that anybody who's spent some time around young children knows that sometimes reactions can be a little bit out of step with the situation, right? <laughs> Because, like, who knows? It, it could be, you know, you didn't get those fruit snacks before we were going to sit down for eating lunch. Um, maybe they can't sit next to the person they want to at dinner, the dinner table. No, it's your brother's turn on the swing. Or, sorry, two and a half seems a little bit young to be given full control of a speedboat pulling your dad at 25 miles an hour. <laughs> Whatever it is, we can all picture these reactions that are out of step with the situation, right? That make it seem like the world is coming crashing down around us and then there's no point in going on. And that's kind of where we find Jonah a little bit. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's probably not just Jonah and the toddlers that find themselves with a proclivity towards this really fast anger. Like, surely if we reflect, we can kind of relate. Like, do we get angry with God in the way that Jonah did over some perceived injustice? 
Are we angry at the world when something doesn't go our way? When things like this happen, how do we react to our spouses, our kids? Are those reactions in step with the gravity of the situation? And what are those things that we hope for, that we trust in, and that we desire, that even if we don't get, we feel like, ah, oh, man, life isn't worth living anymore? What are those areas where we say to God, you can have everything except for that? For Jonah, it was his desire for, and his definition of justice. It was his, his patriotism. And patriotism isn't always a bad thing, but he had taken his understanding of how God should behave towards Israel and how he should behave towards his chosen people and her enemies, and he ultimately like, he elevated that to a place in front of God, ahead of God himself. A love for Israel had prevented him from submitting to the God that chose her. He just couldn't let it go. And again, like, I want to be really clear. I'm not saying that we shouldn't take our questions to God. Absolutely, we should. I'm not saying we shouldn't be honest with him about our big questions or painful experiences that just don't seem to make sense. Quite the opposite. Like, I think the balance of Scripture actually encourages us to take these things to the Lord. Like, just consider Psalms. Like, if, we, if you were to flip through Psalms, you'd see plenty of examples of this. Let's go to one. If we flip to Psalm chapter 13... We're going to read something right out of Israel's songbook. David himself. Psalm 13, starting in verse 1, says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. We can see in David's heart a wrestle with the Lord. He doesn't understand what he's experiencing, just like Jonah doesn't. But at the end of the psalm, we can see that David arrives in a very different place than Jonah. Jonah is saying, this is so grievous, I'd rather die. But David writes in verse 5 and 6, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. And I don't think it takes much explaining to see that really David's conclusion is more appropriate than Jonah's in the midst of uncertainty. David has chosen to trust in God's ultimate character of love and goodness, while Jonah is ready to give up. Now, we have the benefit of looking back on all of this and looking at our issues with the cross in view which is the ultimate explanation of the reconciliation of God's mercy and his justice. It's the ultimate demonstration of his character that in the midst of our anger and our frustration, we can trust his goodness. We can trust that he has gone before us. He knows the pain. And there's a glimmer of hope with Jonah because somebody wrote this story down, which means that Jonah had to tell them which suggests that eventually he came around to a place of reconciliation with God and an understanding of God's grace. Because who would tell a story where they look so terrible except for a sinner who knew that they were totally forgiven, accepted, and held by the Father? That's at least Tim Keller's theory. And as you know, we quote him a bunch, and he's never wrong. So... <laughs> Now, all, there's, there's a lot to teach in this passage. And again, like, I mean, I had a call earlier this week with Darcy of like, man, where are you going to go with this? Because I could go here, you could go there. And there's a ton to teach. But what I'm trying to drive at here this week, what I'm, what I'm trying to push at is Jonah is a work in progress. And so are we. 
The journey of faith in Christ is not a one and done. Nobody trusts Jesus and then a moment later has complete understanding, perfect perspective, and a pure heart. We are all a work in progress. We are all being saved. We are all learning. The theological word that we use for this is sanctification. And apparently, spending a little bit of time in the belly of a fish doesn't even let you skip that part. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians. But we all, with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This transformation, this process, it is normal for the believer. And sometimes it's gradual and it's only really understood or visible in hindsight. Sometimes it comes with big moments of deepened understanding. I was baptized when I was in my early teens. Um, I recall being sure at that time that I wanted to follow Christ, and so it felt like the appropriate thing to do. I was going to be baptized. And then I also can recall after high school, I went off to Bible school on the West Coast to Cape and Ray for a year. And while I was there, there were some pretty big things um, I learned, like um, some big moments where I really feel like my understanding of Christ and his heart, they, it deepened. And it was particularly around the supremacy of love that, that the entirety of scripture is summarized by a couple commandments. Love God, love others. You read that in Matthew from Jesus. And that so impacted me that I actually found myself wondering, like, was I even saved before I knew this? Like, did I even know God? Maybe I should be rebaptized. But as time went on, I grew to understand, no, like, I didn't need to be rebaptized. What I was experiencing and what I've continued to experience since then as I follow Christ is that I'm being sanctified. I'm being transformed. I'm growing in maturity in my faith. And sometimes that happens in sort of these watershed moments as we go deeper. As we walk with the Lord, he's going to take us to new places, to new depths of understanding, transformations of the heart. He's going to continually shape us into him, his image, and that's what he's doing with Jonah. We can expect that God is going to refine us and teach us as we walk with him. He's going to show us his heart and take us to deeper faith, trust, hope, and love of him and his character, even when at the outset it doesn't make sense to us. Sometimes it's going to be a couple steps forward and then one step back, with, like with Jonah. Sometimes it might be confusing and hard. No discipline is pleasant in the moment. And sometimes our, heart, our hearts are going to cry out, with the words of David in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? But let's train our hearts to go quickly to Psalm 13, verse 5, but I trust in your unfailing love, rather than to Jonah 4, verse 3, O Lord, please take my life from me. Let's not emulate Jonah's fast anger. But even if we do, the amazing thing is that God's anger is still slow. Because even after Jonah all but curses the Almighty, like, look at God's response in Jonah 4, verse 4. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Or in the ESV, do you do well to be angry? As we read the whole of chapter 4 and Jonah's sort of argument with God and, and about this whole Nineveh situation and then the plant, like, God doesn't return the favor to Jonah in anger. There's no, oh, you want justice for sinners, do you? How about that justice I showed you by saving you from the sea? No, it's a calm, measured, gentle, and compassionate question that he asks. Do you do well to be angry? Like, Jonah, how is this working out for you? Do you really have a right to feel this way? God, like the good father and compassionate counselor he is, he corrects Jonah, but he does so with a heavy dose of grace and compassion. Compassion that Jonah didn't deserve any more than the, the Assyrians deserved their mercy. 
It's almost as if God has sat down beside him and said, Jonah, let's talk about this. And again, full disclosure, not a parent, not going to tell anybody how to parent. I've had enough wise men tell me that when you don't have children, it's not a good idea to give people advice about parenting. It might come back to haunt you. <laughs> but that being said, I have observed a number of parents, our family and friends who have kids, and I've seen that there are a variety of situations that call for a variety of different responses, right? Some stronger and firmer than others when it comes to disciplining and teaching a child. And I've seen that a number of times, again, a number of parents decide that at, at certain times it's appropriate to take this sort of gentle and, and compassionate response to their children's less than ideal behavior. To get down to, to the child's level and in one way or another, often still with very firm clarity, but coded in love, basically say something to the effect of, okay, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what's going on here. Use your words. Like, how is this working out for you? and gently guide them to the conclusion that perhaps we don't have to sit beside Aunt Reese at every meal, or at least it's not worth losing dessert over. And often my first thought is, wow, you are a better person than I am. Not sure my instinct would have gone to that direction in discipline, but my next reaction is often one of inspiration, like what a great picture of God's gentle, his caring heart as he corrects us. And of course, for fathers both on hev in heaven and on earth, hands sometimes have to be a li little bit firmer. I don't deny the truth of God's wrath and his righteous anger, but there is no doubt that God is in fact slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Because while Jonah's anger about God's mercy to Nineveh is kind of startling and shocking to us, equally so is God's mercy towards Jonah's anger. And he extends that same compassion to each of us as we walk this winding path towards him. He doesn't wait for us to get everything together to figure it all out. He meets us at our level, accepts us as we are, and then calls us to more. God demonstrated his own love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we were far from the heart of God, he loved us, he gave himself for us. Even when we didn't know just how far we were from the heart of God, he loved us and he gave himself for us. The truth is this morning that in one way or another, we all find ourselves like Jonah. We are works in progress. And God in his compassion and grace does not want to leave us behind. He doesn't, he doesn't want to leave us where we are. He wants to take us further. And maybe for some of us, Jonah's story is a bit of a caution as we remember um, that when we wrestle through the challenges of life, maybe, maybe even wrestle with God, we would do well to remember like, where we stand in, in the whole picture. And as if our conflict is with others, we would do well to remember where we've come from. That if God shows grace and compassion to us, we should extend that same grace and compassion to others. But maybe for some of us, Jonah's story is a welcome encouragement. Like you didn't need anybody to tell you that you were broken, resistant to God's heart and far from him. I know I've had moments in my life like that. Maybe your heart's prayer is more like the words of of Lecrae in his 2006 song, Take Me As I Am. It's 5.46 in the morning, tossing and turning, chest burning, sermons in my head keep reoccurring, having visions of my head in my head of a kid crying at the feet of the father for all the wrong things that he did. Now I'm sweating in my sheets, I can't sleep. My mind keeps telling me I'm six feet deep, don't remind me. Even though I'm still alive, I can't tell the way I'm living my life, I feel I'm going to hell. Will you take me as I am? 
I know the way I'm living is wrong, but I can't change on my own trying to make it alone. I wonder, how could you love me when my life is so ugly? But you came down and died for me. Will you take me as I am? And if we are to look for an answer to that question, will you take me as I am this morning in the book of Jonah, the answer is an unequivocal yes. We see it because we are all like Jonah. We are all in progress, and we are all recipients of God's compassionate patience, his slowness to anger. In the words of Tim Keller, because no sermon would be complete without a quote, the gospel says that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Lord, we know that sometimes we get angry. We don't know what's going on. Sometimes we're, oh, just so quick to it, rather than having the measured response that we know we should. But Lord, thank you that you are not, oh, yeah, you, you are just gracious towards us. Thank you that you, even when we're far off, you show this to us. And thank you so much for the, the demonstration of that in your son's sacrifice on the cross, that we can now look back on this and, and to our advantage have something that Jonah and, and even David didn't have, the understanding of how it's all reconciled in Christ's work. And just help us to trust in that and remain steadfast. And we know that we're going to stumble and we're going to fall and we're going to be repentant one day and then a couple weeks later we're going we're gonna to be frustrated and, and we just thank you for your grace in that and, and ask you for, to pour it out more and more on us. Thank you for the message of this, this prodigal prophet. Thank you for what we can learn from him. And Lord, just teach us and continue to uh, give us that grace. We pray. In your name, amen.